Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We have read Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and saw there that they applied to the resurrection. And the resurrection was the great theme, one of the great themes of the apostles' preaching. Acts chapter 13 tells us about one of the greatest churches of the New Testament, the church that was in Antioch of Syria, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. But it's going to lead us to another city called Antioch across the Mediterranean Sea in a part of Asia Minor, which is now called Turkey, in Antioch of Pisidia, where Paul would preach his first recorded sermon. This is by no way his first sermon. He had preached many years before this event. Paul's first sermon teaches us many things about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the Scriptures, the Gospel, faith, election, predestination, and our duty to continue in the grace of God that He's given us. There's so many things in this chapter. My intention is to preach the whole thing in the next few minutes by skipping quickly over those parts that you should be able to easily understand. The first three verses introduce us to this church and the teachers that were in it, including Paul and Barnabas, two apostles, and how they were sent forth by the Holy Ghost to a new ministry. Verses 4 through 13 deal with their ministering, their evangelism on the island of Cyprus at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Then the rest of the chapter is dedicated to Antioch in Pisidia, or Turkey, as we would call it today. First of all, what they preached, and second of all, how those Gentiles in that place responded and how the Jews responded, and the contrast is enormous. And the contrast is still the same today. The preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, when it is done properly, it is a savour of life unto life in God's elect, and it is a savour of death unto death in the reprobates. The gospel is never a savour of death unto life. The preaching of the gospel is a sweet-smelling aroma to God of His election and ordination of men, which is why they believe. And it is a savour of death unto death in those that he has not elected or ordained because they prove that they are unworthy of everlasting life by their hatred of it. Which happens in Acts 13 and it happens everywhere you take the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I'm not talking about the gospel preached in most churches today. That gospel has been watered down and modified so much so that the reprobates, unconverted and carnally living, can be comfortable in a church. They say that. That is how Rick Warren defines his ministry. You want to raise the decibel level of the music and modify the message until everyone is comfortable there. You don't want a person that's coming for the first time to feel uncomfortable. But the Apostle Paul knew no such gospel. And the Bible warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said that he was jealous over the Corinthians because he feared that if preachers came with another Jesus, if they came with another gospel, if they came with another spirit, he was afraid the Corinthians were so carnal and weak and ignorant that they might well listen to that kind of preaching. And he said those men that would come preaching another Jesus and another gospel and another spirit, they are the messengers of Satan. They may look like ministers of righteousness, but they are not. They're the devil's ambassadors. Right. We want to humble ourselves to Acts chapter 13 and learn everything we can very quickly of the Apostle Paul's example and the content of his sermon and then the response. And may our response be like the response of those Gentiles in that city. Brethren, our ancestors were ignored by the God of heaven. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants for his people. The rest of us he left worshiping stones and trees, the sun and creeping things. He winked at our ignorance. He overlooked it. But I thank the God of heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent specially chosen men into the whole world and they reached as far as us to tell us the truth. And God's ordination is proved by us believing that message. 
I have no hope for anyone that doesn't believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hold out no hope for anyone that neglects it or rejects it. You have no evidence of eternal life. If you reject or neglect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have damned yourself. For you have not believed the record that God has given of His Son. And God has given a thorough record. There is no faith without works. We do not believe in anything like decisional regeneration, and neither did the Apostle Paul. He did not tell those Gentiles, as we're going to read in the latter part of Acts chapter 13, that because they'd made a decision for Jesus, they could now know that they were going to heaven. He exhorted them and persuaded them that they should continue in the grace of God. Because that is the real mark of a child of God. They continue and they bring forth fruit and they bring forth good works. And they continue in the gospel and the faith. May the Lord bless us to be faithful. May the Lord bless us to be full of joy in the Holy Ghost as those Gentile converts were. I know that some of you would like to stay on each verse and work every clause of it. And I'm more of that nature than I am the one I'm going to follow this morning. There is an 11-page outline that I've worked on this chapter. But I just want to skim the surface and get right into the sermon. This church at Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem in Syria, was an important church. It's one of the most important of the New Testament. It was Paul's home church his entire time he was out of prison. After every evangelistic trip, he would report back to this church and tell them what great things the Lord had done among the Gentiles by his hands. This church was the one that instituted the council at Jerusalem because it was here that false teachers came and preached that you needed to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be saved. This church was a charitable church. Acts chapter 11, a prophet came from Jerusalem named Agabus and told this church that there was going to be a great famine throughout the whole world in the days of Claudius Caesar. And this church raised up money and sent it to the Jews in Jerusalem. It was, a, it was an important church. It was at this church that Peter came from Jerusalem and played the hypocrite and was to be blamed before the whole congregation. And the Apostle Paul withstood him to his face and blamed him for his hypocrisy and the evil damage that he was doing upon the people in that church. All here at Antioch of Syria. Where is Syria today? You should know about it. It's in the news. It's the nation that lies to the north of Israel. This is Antioch of Syria. We're going to read about a city called Seleucia which is the seaport 16 miles away from Antioch. These two cities were established by a king of the north that Daniel chapter 11 describes, Seleucus I Nicator, of the fallen Greek empire. The kings of the north were in Syria. The kings of the south, the Ptolemies, were in Egypt. The two of them fought back and forth in Daniel chapter 11. Israel lies between those two fragments of the Greek empire and was punished severely. But they established two cities. They named them after their sons, Antiochus, that's why we have Antioch. There were 13 Antiochs in the Greek Empire. That's why we're going to read about two today. They're named after Greeks. Seleucia, which we're going to see here in verse 4, is named after Seleucus himself, the Greek general that took this particular part of Alexander's empire. But the Holy Ghost tells these teachers who are spending their time ministering to the Lord, preaching the Word of God, spending it in prayer and fasting, that there's a special work for Paul and Barnabas. And among those five preachers that were in this church, two of them are set forth on a new work. And after they're told that, they fast and pray some more, and they send those men out with the blessing of God upon them, where God's going to lead. And so they led upriver to the seaport of Seleucia. They got in a ship at Seleucia and sailed a little ways to the island of Cyprus. They entered that island and preached in two cities, Salamis and Paphos, which are at both ends of that island. And it's a pretty decent-sized island if you look at it on a map. They had John Mark, who was a relative of Barnabas, with them at the time. This is, we're told all this in the first 13 verses. They meet a man named Sergius Paulus, who's the Roman deputy of that particular part of the world of the island of Cyprus. He was a prudent man, but he had a Jewish false teacher, a sorcerer, that had a strong influence on him. And this sorcerer tried to keep Paul from preaching the truth to him. And the devil is always making an effort to keep the true gospel of Jesus Christ from going forth. Always. But there was no problem here, because the apostle Paul addressed this man named Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, 
in Hebrew and Greek, and Elamas in Arabic, meaning he was a wise and learned one. He rebuked him and said he was a child of the devil and said, you're going to be blind for a while. And the man, the last time we see him, he's wandering around with, looking for someone to lead him by the hand. He needed a seeing-eyed dog or someone to lead him because immediate blindness, a mist and a darkness fell immediately upon that man under Paul's curse. And the deputy saw that, was astonished at the authority of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believed. Those are, that was a typical mighty sign and wonder done by the Apostle Paul to convince people that what he was saying was from heaven. God gave the apostles special miraculous powers for 40 years to confirm their word that they were eyewitnesses of a resurrected man. And so they preached and so they worked miracles and so there were believers on the island of Cyprus. We come to verse 14. They left the island of Cyprus and came over to what we would call Turkey today. And they came to Perga, then they went to Antioch in Pisidia in verse 14. Now in verse 14 it tells us they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. That is where the Apostle Paul always went. If you come back and look at verse 5, it says when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And if you look throughout the book of Acts, you will find that when Paul entered a city... That's where he would go. Paul preached in synagogues. He did not go to the mall and pass out tracts. He did not go to the jails and preach to prisoners. He didn't go to brothels and preach to prostitutes. He didn't go to orphanages and tell little flannel graph stories with children. If we are going to be Bible Christians, then we follow the Bible. We do not care if all men disagree with us. We're going to follow the Bible. All men disagree with us in Psalm 2-7, where we've already been this morning. The Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, Baptists, and everyone else who studies theology totally disagrees with us on the interpretation of Psalm 2-7. But are you moved by that? Let God be true, but every man a liar is what Romans 3-4 says. When it comes to evangelistic efforts, the Apostle Paul did not carry the message of the gospel and scatter it willy-nilly to people who didn't care. He went into a city and looked for men who feared God. Because without a changed life and the fear of the Lord, the preaching of the gospel was not going to accomplish a thing. Because the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. Because they're spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 If you don't find a man that's born again you're not going to find anyone that's ever going to believe what you have to say about Jesus Christ in a true belief and fruit-bearing life. So what would Paul do? He'd go into a city. All the pagans there are worshiping a polytheistic mess of gods. But there'd be one place in town where Jehovah was being worshipped. And it was a synagogue of the Jews. And in those synagogues, there would be a collection of Jews that lived in that area. And they would be reading the Old Testament and worshiping Jehovah the best they knew. And along with them would be some very strange Gentiles. Very strange Gentiles who had, for some reason, I just told you the reason, they wanted to worship the same God. They left their families and said, I'm not going to believe the polytheistic mess of the Greeks. I'm not going to believe the polytheistic mess, that means many gods. The polytheistic mess of the Romans. This God that is worshipped in that little synagogue down the street, that Jehovah God, I am that I am, that is the true and living God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And though I'm not one of his chosen people, I'm going to go have minor, minor outpatient surgery and I'm going to join that synagogue. Are you all with me? Or do you need me to get more graphic? Okay, good. We're, we're making progress. That was a serious commitment on their part to worship with the Jews. The Jews have always been a despised people. The Lord said they would be. They deserve to be. They're a byword and a proverb in the earth for their wickedness. And they were in all nations. The Romans couldn't stand them because wherever there were Jews, there was trouble. But there were Gentiles worshiping in those synagogues. They were called Gentile proselytes. That means they had converted as far as they could to the religion of the Jews. 
They had had minor surgery, and they listened to those scriptures, and though they weren't the direct objects of the Old Testament, they still knew that once in a while they could read the word stranger in the Old Testament and find out that strangers could attach themselves to the worship of the true God. That's, that's a background. Brethren, the darkness of ignorance hung over the entire earth except for the light of God's word in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. It was only because the persecution about Stephen had got so severe that there were teachers scattered out of the church at Jerusalem that they had gone so far as 300 miles north to get a church started in Antioch of Syria. And then it was God in that church, moving by the Holy Spirit, that sent forth Paul and Barnabas to go across the Mediterranean Sea. The devil has the whole earth in the ignorance and blindness of the nations. But the gates of hell were not going to prevail against the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. He said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations based on his power. He had bound the devil from deceiving the nations. That's why the gospel could go forth. The devil has been bound for 2,000 years from deceiving the nations, but we may be at this hour in the blinding again and deceiving of the nations as the whole world turns against true Christianity. Bible Christianity. You take a stand in the Bible and you'll find out how much so-called Christians don't believe the Bible. Take a real stand on the Word of God. They've turned away from the truth and they've turned their ears unto fables. Here we are. They get off the boat in Perga of Pamphylia. They move over to the city of Antioch in Pisidia. They go into the synagogue and they sit down. They know they're among God-worshipping Jews and a few Gentiles. And brethren, I've always loved this chapter. And those of you who have known me a long time know that one of my favorite expressions is right there in verse 15. Paul and Barnabas are sitting there in that assembly and they get up and they read the scriptures and then the rulers of that synagogue visiting brothers. You two brothers that have just sailed in here from Antioch and and said that you've been from Jerusalem. Do you have any word of exhortation for the people? Do you have anything that you might want to say to this audience? Can you see the glow on Paul's face? Do Do you read the Bible and make it literally plain to you? Do you rejoice in it? Can you see him looking over at Barnabas? Who wants to go first? The delight that was in his soul, knowing that God the Holy Spirit, way back in Antioch of Syria, already knew about this event, and the people that were in the room in Antioch of Pisidia. Do you understand that in the Bible? When Paul was in Corinth, and he was suffering great persecution, the Lord appeared to him in a dream by night, and said, don't you worry, no one's going to hurt you, because I have... Much people in this city. God has his elect in cities, and he sends men like Paul to find them and preach the gospel to them. The Apostle Paul would tell us this about his ministry in 2 Timothy 2.10. I endure all things, and oh, did he endure some stuff. Beaten, whipped, stoned, hungry, poor, persecuted, busy, tired, I endure all things for the elect's sake. 2 Timothy 2.10 So where do you find the elect? You look for those that are worshiping God. You don't go to brothels, malls, sporting events. Paul did not sit in the end of a soccer stadium in Antioch of Pisidia holding up a placard with John 3.16 on it. That is an abuse of God's word. It is casting pearls before swine. It is giving that which is holy unto dogs. Paul never did anything like that, nor did the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor did John the Baptist. Nor did any preacher of the gospel in the New Testament. They went looking for men that were seeking the truth and that worshipped and feared God. In verse 15, the rulers of the synagogue said to Paul and Barnabas, Ye men and brethren... If ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. I do have something to say. And he addresses two categories of people. The men and brethren 
of himself, the Jews, the Israelites, and those that feared God that were among them, the Gentiles. They weren't Israelites. They weren't brethren of Paul. They were from a totally different family line. They were Gentile proselytes. We're told that in verse 43, that that, con- that that assembly was made up of Jews and religious proselytes. That's what he means by the words, and ye that fear God. Because these were Gentiles totally different from their family members in the city of Antioch. Give audience. Listen to me. I do have something I want to say. And then he starts his sermon in verse 17. And from verse 17 down through verse 22, he runs a short history of the nation of Israel. But notice what he starts out with. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. He starts out with the doctrine of election immediately. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. Now those that feared God that were in the audience, the Gentile proselytes that had converted to the Jews' religion, they weren't part of that group. He starts right out reminding those poor Gentiles that they were second-class citizens of the kingdom of God for the time being, but not before he ends his sermon. He starts out reminding them that horrible predicament they were in. Do you know what the Bible says about us by nature? It tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, that we were outside the commonwealth of Israel, and at that time, we were without hope and without God in the world. We didn't have a chance. And blessed be the name of God. He has every right to deal with us that way because we rejected truth and righteousness and the presence of God in the Garden of Eden 6,000 years ago. But being outside the commonwealth of Israel until the cross of Calvary meant that you were without hope and without God in the world. But Paul starts off with election in verse 17 and says that God chose our fathers and he exalted them by his providence in the land of Egypt. They multiplied so fast that Pharaoh couldn't believe it. And Pharaoh and his cabinet knew that there was a threat to the security of the nation of Egypt unless they did something with those Israelites because God exalted them. And then he brought them out with a high arm. God reached forth his mighty right arm and delivered them from Egypt, overthrowing that nation, destroying it, and confiscating the wealth of Egypt to build his own tabernacle and temple in the land of Canaan. So 600,000 footmen, besides wives and children, left the land of Egypt with God's blessing upon them, having separated them from all nations and blessing and exalting them above all nations. And stepping on the Egyptians as they left. This is God's elective choice in the history of the world. Verse 18, he was so merciful toward them that he endured, he suffered their wicked rebellion in the wilderness for 40 years. You know all about that story. You know full well what's going on here. Those Jews would have been shouting amen as Paul gets his sermon started. They'd have been so excited to hear about God's choice of their fathers and exalting them in Egypt the reminder of which they went over constantly because it was so precious to know that of all the nations of the earth, God had chosen the nation of Israel. Verse 19, he describes what Joshua did in the land of Canaan by destroying seven nations and dividing all that territory up by lots to the twelve tribes. After that, he gave them judges for 450 years until Samuel the prophet. If you were to read any other version of the Bible, verse 20 tells us, I'm talking about versions. Verse 20 tells us that it took 450 years to divide up the land of Canaan in every other version. Do you know how long it took to divide up the land of Canaan? It took five years. Do you know how you tell? You go read the book of Joshua. Joshua, Caleb tells Joshua in the book of Joshua, I was 40 when we came out of Egypt. I'm 85 today and I'm ready to go take on the Anakims. So how long did it take to divide up the the land? If he was 40 when he came out of Egypt, how old was he when they finally made it into Canaan? 80. And he said, I'm 85 and I'm just as strong as I was when we spied out the land 45 years ago. So it took five years. How could it take 450 since Joshua only lived a total of 110 anyway? That's what you get from reading Joshua instead of the good, godly, learned opinions about Acts 13.20. Love your King James Bible. Amen. Do you know why God gave them the proper interpretation and translation of Acts 13.20? Because the men that did the King James Bible feared God. That's right. 
Thomas Nelson publishers. There's no evidence that there's anyone among them that fears God. All they do is love money. That's why they took the King James Bible, a public domain work, stuck the word new on the front of it, copyrighted it. This book ain't copyrighted. That's why you can buy it for $1 at a dollar store to make money. Enough on that. Love your King James Bibles. Verse 20 tells us that there were were 450 years of judges until Samuel the prophet. Goes on with their history and says, After the judges ended, the nation of Israel wanted a king like all the nations around them, and so God raised up Saul of the tribe of Benjamin for the space of 40 years. If you look at the modern versions in 1 Samuel 13, 1, they have no clue how long Saul was king or what age he was when he became king. And for those of you that remember the Bible Babel that we've looked at before, it comes from Acts 13, 21, because all those Bibles say that he reigned for 40 years in this place. But in 1 Samuel 13, 1, in the New International Version, in the Message, and the other books, the novels about the Bible, they say all sorts of things. Remember, we've looked at it before. 20, 22, 30, 32, 52, all sorts of different times. Paul is preaching to these people of Israel, and he gives them a brief history of their nation. He says in verse 22, after he had removed Saul. This is the God of heaven. The God of heaven can remove one man from office and set up another man. Did David sin? Did David sin as grievously as Saul? David sinned terribly. But God removed Saul from being king, and he put David in his place. He took away the authority and the rule from the tribe of Benjamin and gave it to the tribe of Judah. And that's what's being declared in verse 22. When he removed him, that is King Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Through this man, I will fulfill all my will, including the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, and now here Paul is making an application of this man's seed. Hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior. And what's his name? Jesus, the son of David. Jesus is known as the son of David throughout the New Testament. So much so is he called the son of David that in some prophecies of the Old Testament, he's called David. Several places, Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, Ezekiel chapter 37, he's called David. David was a shepherd, and God chose David's occupation because David's son was going to be the great shepherd of the sheep. Hebrews 13, 20. Verse 24, Paul says, When John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now I want you, this is a little side point, but it's worthwhile. When did John, what coming did John preach before? His coming to Mary? His birth? John preached before what event in the life of Jesus? His baptism. Because that is when Jesus of Nazareth was made manifest to the nation of Israel at his baptism. For 30 years he lived in total obscurity. That's very important. Because when you go back to Daniel chapter 9 and you read the 70 weeks of years of prophecy leading up to Messiah the Prince, it leads up to when he was declared to be the Messiah. He was announced as the Messiah of Israel at one specific event. And that was his baptism. Because the Holy Spirit had told John the Baptist, when you're baptizing and you baptize the one that's coming after you, the Holy Ghost is going to descend from heaven and abide upon him. And you can declare that that one is the Lamb of God, the Messiah of Israel, and that's just what John did. And John explains all of that in graphic detail in John chapter 1. When John had first preached before his coming... See, John the Baptist was only six months older than Jesus of Nazareth. He wasn't preaching as a six-month-old baby. He preached 30 years later before the baptism of the Lord Jesus because that's when he came as the announced, presented, public and formal Son of God, Messiah of Israel. That's when he was declared. Verse 25, Paul goes on reminding them about John the Baptist's ministry. As John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Now look at Paul. Take the, 
This information would have spread. There was no synagogue in the world that didn't know about John the Baptist. He was too important of a figure. That's why all the Pharisees went out to his baptism, though they were not baptized by him. It says all of Jerusalem and all of Judea went out to him. He was a well-known person. But Paul's reminding them, remember what that John the Baptist said. He said there was one coming after him that was more important than he was. In fact, he was so much greater than John that John wasn't even worthy to lose his shoes. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, there's the Jews, and whosoever among you feareth God, there's the Gentile proselytes, to you is the word of this salvation sent. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was sent first of all to the Jews because they were God's chosen people. Then it was sent to those that fear God, and Paul found them by going to synagogues where Jehovah-worshipping Gentiles would gather. Because God would have opened their hearts to believe the truth of the Old Testament that the Jews had. Men and brethren, I have a word to you. God chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God exalted us in the land of Egypt and brought us out with a high arm. God suffered our manners in the wilderness and established us in the land of Canaan. After 450 years of judges under God's blessing, he gave us a king named Saul. Then he gave us a king named David. And of David, he said, David would fulfill all his will. And David has a son that is alive named Jesus. John the Baptist told about him, and I'm here today to declare him to you. If you would have been a a Gentile or a Jew that feared God in that assembly, you would have had goosebumps. As the Apostle Paul opened up the Old Testament, and he now explains that the fulfillment of all those generations of dealing with the Jews was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Men and brethren, verse 27, the Jews would have known verse 27. They that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. This Jesus of Nazareth that John the Baptist spoke about, that the rulers of the Jews had crucified by the Romans, they didn't know him. They didn't recognize him because they don't know the scriptures. Because God had blinded them. How many times do we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts that that generation of Jews, and a great extent of them, were blinded to the gospel? That's why he spoke in parables. Verse 28, And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. They pressed Pilate. Pilate over and over and over said, I find no fault in him. You deal with him. I find no fault in him. But they pressured Pilate to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. This John the Baptist that you've heard about spoke of one coming after him. The one that came after him that John the Baptist identified was Jesus of Nazareth. You have heard about him. I'm telling you that the reason he was crucified by our rulers in Jerusalem was because they didn't know him. And they didn't even know the scriptures that told about him. And they pressed Pilate to crucify him, even though Pilate knew he was an innocent man. And they hung him on a cross and they put him in the grave after they had fulfilled everything that was written about him. And you know, when you read the gospel accounts, especially John chapter 19, the beloved disciple John was there at the cross. And he saw the soldiers come out with the express command, go break their legs. Because that would hasten death. If you're hanging on a cross, and all of a sudden your legs are broken, and you can no longer exert pressure to keep your diaphragm up and open, you can no longer breathe, you suffocate to death very quickly. What a pleasant way to say goodbye to someone. Bust their legs after hanging on a cross for five hours in the hot sun. We're coming to the Lord's table today because we're going to remember what He did for us. But John stood there and he watched those soldiers come out and got to the first thief and busted his legs. They get to the second thief. I mean, they get to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in the middle between the two thieves. And they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Why? Because the prophecy said 
not a bone of him shall be broken. Amen. Two, he watched one of the soldiers grab a spear and pierce him in the side. Why? Because there's another prophecy in the Old Testament says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. He hadn't been pierced that way yet. So they were, he was pierced with a spear. And John wants you to know in John chapter 19, I was there and I saw it. And I'm telling you what I witnessed with my own eyes. But anyway, Paul's, Paul could have related all, relate all that as well. But he says, all that was written of the Lord Jesus Christ was fulfilled. And our rulers in Jerusalem, because they didn't know him and because they don't know the scriptures either. That's not very kind. A Pharisee could quote the Bible. A good Pharisee could quote the Old Testament. But Paul said they didn't know the scriptures that are read every Sabbath day. And so they have fulfilled the very, their very own scriptures in condemning their very own Messiah that was sent to their nation. He came into his own, and his own received him not. They laid him in a sepulcher. And here is the punchline of the gospel. But God raised him from the dead. Amen. You have heard about John the Baptist. You have heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm telling you what happened to him was because of the ignorance of our rulers. They didn't identify him correctly, even though John the Baptist had. They did not know the scriptures so that they could measure the scriptures and see that he fulfilled them. I know about his crucifixion. Everything that was written about him in his death was fulfilled. And they put him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. Now, brethren, sit there and listen to me. Paul's, Paul's preaching. Sit there and listen to me. Give me audience because I want to show you that the scriptures told us that he would rise from the dead. You may have heard about him and wondered how could the Messiah of Israel have been crucified and put in a tomb. But I'm here to tell you that he's alive. Amen. He is alive. Thank you, Deborah, for that song. He's alive. He's alive. I'm forgiven. Heaven's gates are open wide. Do you know who said that according to a song that I'm referring to? Peter. Did Peter need some comfort like that? He's alive. I'm forgiven. Heaven's gates are open wide. God raised him from the dead. Now listen, you Gentiles and Jews that are sitting here in my audience. Listen. He was seen many days. How many days? You know all this. Forty days he was seen of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. Don't you know that there's a small band of men that came from Galilee? That's about a hundred miles north of Jerusalem. Jesus came from a poor part of it. He didn't come from Judah. He was, he was from Judah biologically and legally. Joseph and Mary, his legal father, his biological mother, both from the, out of the, the, the loins of David by Nathan and by Solomon, two of his sons. But he was, he was raised in the area of Nazareth and Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee, well north in three other tribal properties. This Lord Jesus came out of Galilee and he brought with him some chosen witnesses that witnessed his whole ministerial life. And God has chosen them to be his witnesses to the people. When we talk about an apostle, we are talking about someone who was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ and saw him after his resurrection. We live in a city where the fastest growing church in our city claims to have an apostle at its head. His name is Ron Carpenter. He's no closer to being an apostle than the dog you keep in your yard. There are no apostles since Paul. Paul was the last apostle. Because you had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be an apostle because the apostles were eyewitnesses of His resurrection. We've seen Him. Did Paul see the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Indeed. Over and over again, the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, last of all, he was seen of me. These are his witnesses. That's an apostle. Don't you listen to Benny Hinn or anyone else tell you that they're an apostle. Do you know what Revelation chapter 2 says that the church of Ephesus did well? They tried those that said they were apostles and found them to be liars. You make, there is no such thing as an apostle and there hasn't been for 1,900 years. It doesn't matter how good, godly, or kind they are. It doesn't matter how charismatic they are or how fast their church grows. Of course, if you're a liar, your church is going to grow. Lies always grow faster than truth. It's always been that way. Jesus told the Jews that wouldn't believe on him, because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Lies are always more popular. Don't you be deceived. There are no apostles. 
They're all gone. They've been gone for 1,900 years, and Paul was the last one. These are the witnesses to the people. Verse 32, And we declare unto you glad tidings. Paul and Barnabas were apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. We declare unto you glad tidings. How that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. Notice, he had started out with God choosing the fathers of Israel. And now he says, God is fulfilling the promise that he made to our fathers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've now come to verse 33, which is where Paul tells us what Psalm 2-7 means. Verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. God has fulfilled the sending of a Messiah. God has fulfilled the scriptures of the Old Testament in sending Jesus Christ. And we declare glad tidings to you. You may have heard about John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. And you may have been very discouraged to find out that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified in Jerusalem and buried. But we have glad tidings for you that God raised him from the dead. And that there is a band of witnesses that have seen him alive. Many of them over many days. The 40 days. What does the Bible tell us in 1 Corinthians 15? It says that above 500 men saw him at one time. And that by many infallible proofs, he showed that he was alive. He ate a fish fillet in front of them. A fish sandwich. You can read about it in the last two chapters of the Gospel of John. You know, he wasn't just a spirit. His body was resurrected from the dead. And he ate and drank with them. They handled him. They stuck their fingers in the holes in his wounds. They could stick their hand in his side. It was glorified wounds. The Lord Jesus Christ. We declare unto you glad tidings that God has fulfilled the promise of the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the seed of the woman, the Shiloh of Judah. He has fulfilled all of that to us in that he hath raised up Jesus again. They put him in a sepulcher. God raised him from the dead. And we declare glad tidings that the promises that God made to our fathers, God hath fulfilled to us, their children. You are a blessed group of Jews in this synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. Because I tell you a good report that Jesus of Nazareth is alive. You know what he would say? He said it in Revelation 1.18. When John fell at his feet as dead... He said, I am he that was dead and am alive. And I am alive forevermore. Amen. We declare glad tidings. You bet he had glad tidings. Those rulers had said, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? You bet he had a word of exhortation for the people. Jesus of Nazareth was alive. Verse 33 says, now look, look at it carefully. Please learn. I want you to learn your Bibles. That's my job. You children, Anthony, Acts 13.33, Amanda, Esther, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Isn't that sweet? Acts 13.33 tells us exactly what Psalm 2.7 is talking about when it says, I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What is it referring to? Eternal generation? Never. The incarnation? Never. Not here. The resurrection. Because that is when God declared to the whole world that had crucified him, he raised him from the dead. Do you know what it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4? That Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Him from the dead. That's when God said, This is my Son. And kiss the Son, lest He be angry. You took my beloved Son, and you crucified Him when Pilate was willing to let Him go. But God raised Him from the dead. And so momentous was that decision to resurrect Jesus from the dead, and that event of raising Jesus from the dead, that shows him to be the Son of God. His birth didn't show him to be the Son of God except to a few select people. The shepherds out in the field, those that knew Mary was a virgin. But the resurrection was declared to the whole world by the apostles. The Jews came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 and said, 
Show us a sign that we can believe that you're the Son of God. You know, that's after 10,433 miracles. They said, show us a sign that you're the Son of God. He said, kill me and put me in the ground. And in three days and three nights, I'll come out of it. That will be my sign that I'm the Son of God. And God raised him from the dead three days and three nights later. We don't follow that Easter heresy, which is one day and two nights. What ridiculous insanity. The one sign that Jesus gave that he was the Son of God, the one sign, three days, three nights in the belly of the earth. So the whole Christian world celebrates this thing they call Easter that they got from Astarte, a pagan goddess of the spring. They run around and have Easter egg hunts on the church grounds after the service. They stand and worship the rising sun, singing hymns to it on Sunday morning. I did all of it myself. The one sign that Jesus gave that he was the Son of God was three days and three nights. They put him in the ground on Friday afternoon and have him up Sunday morning, one day and two nights. 36 hours instead of 72 hours, the one sign that he gave that he was God's Son. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the, that the true gospel that preached by Paul was that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Three days and three nights. But notice, Acts 13.33 tells us that Psalm 2.7 is talking about the resurrection. Because it was at the resurrection that the Lord Jesus Christ was proven to be the Son of God and given all the authority at God's right hand as the one that had been promised to sit on David's throne forever. And as concerning that he raised him from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. That's from Isaiah 55. I read that this morning when we opened the service. Isaiah 55, 1 through 5. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come to the water. Buy milk and honey without price, without money. Amen. What is that? What is that sustenance that you can have so that you can delight yourself in fatness? It's the message of the gospel that God has a son, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, sitting on his throne, and in him is preached the forgiveness of sins. Right. So Paul, in verse 33, takes one scripture and explains it. It's talking about the resurrection. You have heard about John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. I'm telling you that God's raised him from the dead, that he has a band of witnesses that came from Galilee with him who are his apostles. And I'm telling you that your Old Testament scriptures told you all about this. Psalm 2-7 declared it. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 5 declared it. Verse 35, Paul goes on. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm. What psalm? Psalm 16. The other one that we read this morning. Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. This is Bible preaching right now. I try to follow the pattern of Bible preaching. I want you to look at Paul. This is Bible preaching. Quote Psalm 2, verse 33. Quotes Isaiah 55, verse 3, in verse 34. Quote Psalm 16, in verse 35. He takes those three statements and he proves that they had to be talking about Jesus this way. Verse 36, for David, David who wrote Psalm 2, David who wrote Psalm 16, David who was described in Isaiah 55, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, see a man is only good for his own generation because then he dies along with everyone around him. After he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, meaning he died, and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. David that wrote Psalm 2, that, that was written about in Isaiah 55, and that wrote Psalm 16, he died, was buried, and his body corrupted. We all know that. But he, whom God raised again, saw no corruption. This is the logical lesson of the gospel. Starts off with God's choice of election in Israel, moves all the way up to the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, Reminds them of John the Baptist. Reminds them of Jesus Christ, how he was treated in Jerusalem. That he was raised from the dead and there's a pile of witnesses to prove it. Then he takes the Old Testament scriptures and confirms it. That the Old Testament taught you this if you'd have known the scriptures. Because Psalm 2 couldn't be about David. 
It has to be about a son of David. Psalm 16 couldn't be about David because he saw corruption. It's got to be about a son of David. Isaiah 55 can't be about David, even though it's called the sure mercies of David. It's got to be a son of David. And here's where I end for the moment. Be it known unto you, therefore. All the seminary trained, Pharisees, Sadducees, Levites, lawyers, scribes that were in Jerusalem, they did not know the scriptures and they did not know Jesus of Nazareth. And therefore they crucified him. Be it known therefore unto you. You poor Jews that are so far away from Jerusalem, you haven't seen the temple in a long time, that are living way over here across the Mediterranean in Antioch of Pisidia, you poor Gentiles who know that you're outside the commonwealth of Israel, be it known, be it known. Do you, do you all know this? Be it known unto you, therefore, by the logical process I've just followed with, the his, followed with the history of Israel, the history of John the Baptist, the history of Jesus of Nazareth, the history of his crucifixion, the history of his resurrection, and the proof of the scriptures. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Amen. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are witnesses chosen. They are apostles. They saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the elect. He saved us from our sins. The angel had told Joseph that Mary would bring forth a son. He was to name that son Jesus, for he, would, he shall save his people from their sins. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll take up the rest of this chapter and how those Jews and Gentiles respond to this message and what it said about them by their response. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, the fulfillment of Isaiah 55, the fulfillment of Psalm 16. Through him is preached the forgiveness of sins. And all that believe are justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses which you gathered together this Sabbath day to have read to you, I preach to you a Savior named Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. And through him is the forgiveness of sins, which the law of Moses can never do. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for sending the joyful sound all the way to us Gentiles. Amen.